welcome to another episode of Ordinary Old Catholic Me. I guess I might owe an apology in a sense, in that I realize that a lot of episodes of this podcast lately, of Ordinary Old Catholic Me, have been a little bit like Debbie Downer or complaining Catholic instead of ordinary Catholic, ordinary complaining Catholic, or kooky Catholic with foil on head. But I guess the whole point of doing this is to talk about what I see, what is affecting me, which I'm assuming at some level is affecting others. I mean, I have to name it that what's going on around us, around me, is very scary. I could ignore it by just closing the door and living my life without any attention to the details around me, the cosmic ones, the national ones, the international ones. But that would defeat the whole purpose of the podcast, to talk about what an ordinary Catholic is seeing and feeling and how that Catholic is interpreting it and something to compare to how you're interpreting it. So last week I talked once again about the Eucharist in the face of an episode where someone at Mass walked away with the consecrated host without consuming it. Intercepted, the person acted confused, but ultimately did take in the host. I heard from other parishioners that this person was glaring at them after the Mass, which is kind of emblematic of our nation right now and our world, in that you do something wrong, you blame somebody else. As I also said last week, Perhaps it would have been elucidating to all of us if someone had been able to dialogue with her and try to ascertain what it was that was in her head about the Mass, about her experience, about going up to receive something she perhaps did not understand, an opportunity perhaps at evangelization and understanding. But then, this past week, it happened again. A person walked away with the host in hand. Again, a server intercepted the person who was wearing a mask, as all of were doing, but in explanation for the action, pointed to the mask and said something about not being able to swallow. Okay, then why take communion at all? Another parishioner retrieved the host, and the server consumed our Lord. Apparently, I was told, this type of activity has become common, though I have to say I hadn't seen it that much myself. And it reminded me that this time in the secular world and in the world of Catholicism and every religion, as I said, it's very, very scary. My Star Trek interests always provide me with a visual for what all of us are experiencing in particular in the last several years. In the original series, there was an episode called Mirror, Mirror, where the main cast, the good stalwart members of the Federation, are swept into a parallel universe where everything is power and violence and the subjugation of others. Everything looks the same, but the attitudes and motivations of people physically exactly like themselves are cruel and distorted. There are days that I feel like subsequent characters in the series who are being pulled into all sorts of cosmic dangers, hanging on to some rafter in a room in which they and the air are being sucked out. Or, in biblical terms, 
I'm feeling the pressing shadow of powers and principalities letting loose on all of us. The initial question is, why would anyone come to a church and engage in a profane act? One answer is that the person doesn't realize that it's a profane act. Okay, but would you walk into someone's house as a guest and begin treating the objects of their home disrespectfully? Would not basic rules of reverence for the social construct prevail? You and I have been to the places of worship of other faiths, and have we not recognized the need to give deference to their ways of ritual and not to give any scandal to ourselves or others, just as a matter of polite society? I've been to Buddhist temples and to synagogues and to other Christian denomination churches. I'm there, I watch, I listen, but I never intrude because I understand that I have not given assent to these particular rituals. I would never go to someone's house and seeing a very comfortable couch, take off my shoes and hop on the couch and request a refreshing drink without an invitation from the owner of the house. It seems that it doesn't take sophisticated catechesis or require it for someone to demonstrate the most basic of civility. So while I can't necessarily attribute malevolence to someone who takes the host without belief or even confusion, I do quibble with the idea that the person thinks he or she has a right to everything which his or her desire or feeling prompts. And the blissful idea that the other is required to allow them to do exactly what they want, at best, the attitude represents a lack of boundaries. In every place there are, or there have been, as part of the problem, it's that the very idea of this is going the way of the dodo bird, there have been rules of behavior. You learn the rules, you assent to them, and then you abide by them. If you don't like to do that, then you leave peacefully. But now the attitude is change everything you do because I want it. But of course, that's why we have had rules because there are also the malevolent among us. And without the rules, the malevolent have free reign. And those rules have to be consistent, applied in all cases, and based on something independent of how you and I feel. So there are, in the receipt of communion at a Catholic church, two overarching rules. The first is that you do not receive God in your hand or on your tongue if you have not assented that the rubrics of the Catholic faith are as they are posited. And second, if you do believe that you have received the transubstantiated God, that you follow the liturgical way in which he is to be taken. Why? One answer is that he is God and you are not. I've heard it as an interjectory prayer, you are God and I am not, which really should be a way to jar us into humility. Here is my image of what happens when we treat the host, assuming he is what he says he is, God in the form of bread. It's not unlike how Jesus was treated during the days of Calvary, dragged, punched, reviled, laughed at, hurt. And if the person who is doing it does not see it, they should understand when a believer becomes distressed and seeks to rehabilitate the action of the person walking away with God. 
you may not believe that the host is God. That's fine. That's a choice between you and whatever higher power you do or do not believe in. You may not understand it. You may vaguely understand or be indifferent, but inside that church where the majority of those present believe, that host is the God we worship. People have died to preserve it. I'm not sure that my faith is strong enough that I would die to protect it. I hope it is, but I know how weak a creature I am. God doesn't need my protection, but he does deserve, by virtue of being God, my reverence, my praise, my obedience, and my complete service unto death. That's a reason that when people tell me that religion generally, and this religion in particular, is simply a way to comfort ourselves, the opium of the people, something the progenitors of communism said, like Marx, well, it's kind of a laugh. If you or I, who are Catholic, actually abide by the easiest of the dogmas and doctrines of the faith, we are truly carrying the cross as our Lord did. If one is Catholic, one is supposed to, for example, remain chaste. If one is married, one will certainly have sexual intimacy, but that intimacy is supposed to be open to procreation. It's the union of two people, a man and a woman, open to procreation, to the family, which is the bedrock of community and society. An unmarried Catholic is to remain chaste, meaning, in this case, no sex of any kind. That is our portion, and not just because it's just some arbitrary rule, but because it is the reflection of the Trinity, three in one, that created us. I am completely aware that among all members of the society, the Catholics themselves, this particular unchangeable imperative meant to preserve us as temples created by God is hardly adhered to. And so, no longer open to procreation, contraception became not an exception for well-determined moral or real health reasons. It became the rule contra to the rule that has never changed. I don't want to give the impression that I have some magic ability to adhere to the rules, but if I am within the faith, then the goal is for me to adhere because I see it in a larger perspective, in the context of the fall, in reparation for the fall, and in trying to achieve a unity with God, the God that I say I believe in. I recently saw one of the many Fulton Sheen Life is Worth Living programs, and I one in which he was talking about hell, but not the cosmic hell, but the hell we create when we replace our authentic selves with this phantom self. But as he said, it's not quite a quote, must be serviced all the time, nourished, for example, not by responsibility, but by, for example, government. I like this image that he offered, which is that everyone is running to an abyss, and those who resist the abyss are the ones who are called fools. So, for example, going back to chastity, so where was I? Contraception. So contraception becomes not the exception, it becomes the rule. And then the line beyond one which did not go moved, and abortion became not rare, as was promised by making it legal, but just another method of contraception, a god, small g, of the self, in that 
Fulton Sheen program, he used the phrase related to his particular topic, but I think relates here, we become fugitives from God. The thing about rules, moral imperatives, ideals generally, is that they are there because without them, a la Lord of the Flies, human beings almost always give in to their concupiscent natures. That is the result of the fall, even children, because Lord of the Flies is about children. The rules that have been there, the ideals, the moral imperatives, don't mean we don't fail. We always fail. That's the result of the fall. But the goalpost is there for us to reach. The rules are a road, if you will, to the ultimate goalpost, which is God. In the Fulton Sheen episode that I watched the other day, he did a little drawing on his little blackboard that he always used to use, and he put the phrase God on top twice, and man twice below God. And then he did an arrow, and in the first he pointed the arrow up from man to God, and in the second he pointed the arrow down from God to man. And he said that what man tries to do is pull himself by his own bootstraps to what God is, to God, what he perceives as God, I guess. But in fact, that's not the foundation. It's God bringing himself to man for us to hang on to, to be our platform, to be our, I don't know, he didn't say this, our ultimate ideal. When we fail to hold on to the truths of God, we Catholics have confession. It's always there when we're short of the goal of God, that the rules and moral imperatives help fashion for us. But in the case of you know, chastity, when we eradicate the goalpost or move it constantly, sex before marriage becomes abortion is a good. And we have children sacrificed to the God of the self with nice words to cover the blood and guts reality of the evil. The society agreed and many Catholics agreed, despite the still extant moral imperatives of the church, that sex outside marriage is the norm, a good, and that ultimate different kinds of variety become the spice of life. So going back to when someone says, oh, Catholicism, all religions are the opium of the people. Well, if you are a person in the Catholic faith who's trying to live out chastity, you are living the life of the cross with the ultimate hope and true goal of union with God at the end. When religious people say that this is what we are made for, that this is why Jesus came, died, and was resurrected to restore God's relationship with fallen men, I understand that people laugh. But are you going to tell me that the goalpost hasn't moved in this society to an ultimate destructive end in pretty much any arena that you can imagine? If I were to say that polyamory, intimate relations among multiple partners at once, is a norm, would you say that I am incorrect? Multiple love? Love is love? It is considered ethical in our society. There is even a flag for polyamory. The goalpost moves again. How does this happen? And within the faith, does it become acceptable? It begins with a few people saying that what they are doing offends no norms. It's a preference that others have no right to interdict. I'm doing my thing. I'm not hurting anyone. But we're not looking at the long game that perhaps the very structure of civil society might be destroyed if the outer limits of my desire 
are allowed free reign. And the reason we don't take that long view is a concern not to offend, to hurt the feelings of the other. We all want to be tolerant and so allow the person to do his or her thing. Then the advertising campaign begins. Tolerance is no longer sufficient with the norms of the society remaining intact. And the norms of the faith, the very simple in form, though not simple in action, no sex outside marriage, becomes a target. Every one of us, religious or non-religious, would say, I think, that there are certain things beyond which we ought not go. Without a main rule, your line in the sand, and mine, varies, and no one has a right to challenge the other. So here's an example that has quietly been percolating for quite some time. I'm going to guess that most everyone would say, oh no, that's wrong. But do you know, for example, that there's a movement to destigmatize pedophilia? Oh, don't be ridiculous, you might say. Well, well, take a look at a USA Today article in 2022. Look at the DSM-5 definition of the disorder and the debate over it. A year or so ago, when some pundits, be it conservative ones, said that the progressive thinkers were trying to advocate that men give birth, people laughed at those pundits. But isn't that what we're being told now and we're not really allowed or we're made to feel uncomfortable about noting the incongruity and the distortion of basic biology? Are you going to tell me that there aren't people advocating for legal exceptions to what is considered pedophilia, ethophilia, the attraction to someone 15 to 19, or hebophilia, an interest in early adolescence, 11 to 14? Of course there are. The words have begun to change, like the word destigmatizing, or using this phrase, minor attracted. This is how all morality dies. It starts with shifting words, invoking offense at any effort to say something is problematic, some small punishments for the raising of the issue, and then some larger ones, career, life opportunities, and ultimately, real persecution. And when these things seep into your own church, into your faith, it becomes such a morass, such a frightening place to be. It would be difficult enough that the society falls victim to the distortions about what's good or bad. But the church? I'm all for opening the window and looking at how the unchangeable truths affect us today and how we are able to seek God. But this window opened and everything solid has been made into a bog so you say, well, what the heck? She started with the attitude toward communion in the hand and ended with the ills of the society writ large. Well, actually, how one handles God when receiving communion is way bigger than all the secular issues. But the point is that everything we as a church has done in small things has led to the breakdown of someone taking the host away and everything else that is currently ailing in this society every society that has gone in these directions has died. What of the church? People dress as if they're going to the beach or a nightclub. I'm not exempting myself. I've never dressed like I was going to the beach or a nightclub, but, you know, I dress casually. We wear shirts advocating all sorts of problematic messages. We saunter up to the priest. We talk during Mass. We have to reorient ourselves as Catholics if we are going to bring truth to the society in which we live. What we are seeing in the world and in the church is an example, to me, of the secular broken windows theory. 
I remember how this began. In New York, where I used to live and work in the 1970s, you would ride the elevated train and all along the way you'd notice buildings. Some were still occupied, others were abandoned, where all or many of the windows were broken. And the more they stayed broken, the more they got broken. This was also when the trains themselves were covered in graffiti and we were told that really this is art people expressing themselves then in 1982 a couple of guys wrote an article about it james wilson and george kelling if you allow this somewhat small disorder then bigger disorder occurs once social and in this case we are also talking about moral and religious controls are minimized then a pattern begins of more disorder and more disregard of the rules. You know, you can't deny that that's happening in many of our cities. People going into stores and taking hundreds or thousands of dollars of stuff that doesn't belong to them and everyone just allows it or making it easier for someone to be a crack addict by making it more hygienic with government funds. And as much as any of us identifies or worries or cares about the homeless, there are streets where there used to be one tent, one person, and now there are 20 or 30 people on a sidewalk in the middle of filth. Human beings living in filth and no one is allowed to speak. We don't like to hear, either as Catholics or citizens of any nation, that we were created good but inclined toward evil, toward disorder. Not liking to hear it is not the same thing as it not being true. The goal of life is not to avoid hurting feelings, and yet in all these things we are slipping into, in the church and outside of it, that seems to be our only object. So, in the church, we allow someone to receive communion, to receive God, even when they don't believe that it is God or care. And who does this serve? God? Certainly not. Ourselves? The acquisition of grace? Nope. The fact is, inside or outside of the church, we need rules or the wheels come off the wagon as they clearly have in every aspect of life. In that program of Bishop Sheen's, he said, what differentiates the good man from the bad man in the terrible situations, like, for example, in a concentration camp or in any horrible circumstance where there would be the desire to hurt the other in order to save oneself, is that the good person cooperates with God in all things. The bad person does not. And we have to be prepared to be able to do that. When faithful Catholics raise the idea of Apocalypse or Fatima or any of the miracle prophecies, the knowing laugh. The knowing laughed at Sodom and Gomorrah. They laughed just before the flood. What's going on is scary because we're repeating human history yet again in our narcissism. And while we deny the existence or power of the devil, a created creature whom God will defeat, we condemn ourselves as individuals if we do not decide where we stand. It is critical in this battle that I know, that you as a Catholic know, and that those who approach the Mass know that the host is God. Because we need the grace in order to survive the battle and not to find ourselves on the wrong side of heaven, which, by the way, is eternal hell. Someone might think I'm crazy. Okay.
My obligation is to save my soul, and if I can tell others how important that is, help save theirs. We each make our own decisions, and we live and we die with them. And so ends another episode of Ordinary Old Catholic Me. Um, I'm having a thought that was generated by a discussion at dinner I had with some friends, uh, one of whom is, is, a, is an ex-Catholic. I, I don't use the word lapse because I think he uses the word ex. And he was joking that, you know, would I have someone like him on the program to talk about his experience of the faith, which of course led him to leave the faith. So I'm thinking about it. And I'm wondering whether he will do it if I actually ask him. So what do you think? Should I have someone who no longer believes on the program? Someone with the same background that I have? Let me know. Talk to you next week.